Welcome along to another episode of the Thames Podcast. My name is James Coleman and as always we're here to shine a light on all things mentoring within education. This week we chat with Aretha Banton and Yolande Harrowell, both senior leaders within schools and the founders of Mindful Equity UK. We talk about their journeys to leadership as two black women within education and what impact they hope to have through working collaboratively with schools and leaders across the country. So, as always, settle down, take a breath and grab a cup of tea as we hope you enjoy the latest episode of the Thames Podcast. Okay, I'm delighted to say I've got Yolande and Aretha with me now. Good evening. Hi, James. Thank you very much for taking time out of your very hectic schedules. It's seven o'clock on a Wednesday of a school week, so I'm very grateful for you both being here. Oh, happy to be here. No, it's great. Um, so uh, you guys have set up uh, around about three months ago, I think now. So you guys have set up Mindful Equity. Talk to me a little bit, uh, and it only needs to be a brief overview about how, why, uh, when uh, Mindful Equity came to be. Sure. So um, I'll, I'll start on that, I think. Um, so Aretha and I had the, the pleasure of working with each other um, for the part a year ago. For, for an entire academic year. And during uh, lockdown, which we know affected teachers in a very different way, because it wasn't really a lockdown for us. It was very much a change and a pause to the way um, schools normally run. So Black Lives Matter um, became very prevalent and it triggered a conversation around not only our experiences, our personal experiences within education within uh, the pipeline and, and growing uh, into senior leadership but also how and how two black women ended up on the same senior leadership team but more importantly why that felt like such a special and unique moment um, after some self-reflection we both realized that there was a lot of um, similarities between our, our journeys of it not necessarily being a, a straight path and we unpicked what it was that really helped us achieve the success that we've had in our careers. Uh, we identified that there was clearly um, support from what we call allies, those, those people who, they, they may be men, they may be uh, white men at that, or, or women in our, in our lives who have championed us, who have spotted our talent and, and offered that support when needed to guide us through uh, the career that is, um, or the vocation, if you will, that is teaching. In addition to that, it's going right back to the beginning and thinking what else could have actually been in place to, to speed up this process, to ensure that we were very clear from the very beginning what it meant to be a leader. We're very clear that there are some nuanced experiences for Black and Asian women um, coming up through the ranks. And it really prompted us to say, we need to take action on this so that more women feel that they are able to break that glass ceiling. More black and Asian women are able to break that glass ceiling and make it into leadership. Um, and essentially it led to us thinking, we're, we are gonna take action. We're gonna remain in the, the profession. We're gonna disrupt the system from within um, and create this, this business, which we do in, in our time outside of our full-time jobs, both for our senior leaders in schools. Um, and Aretha beautifully summarizes the sort of three core strands of, of our business. Uh, so yeah, so we've got three core strands. So the first strand is our In Ed Together network, and that comprises of some events. 
Um, we have mentoring that we offer our network uh, participants. And really it's just about demystifying the career pathway and enabling them to plot their pathway, but also gain the self-confidence to action their pathway. And then we have our consultancy strands where we uh, work with companies or settings on really embedding a, uh, diversity and equality in their settings and their workplaces and championing um, people from diverse backgrounds into leadership. And then we have a research strand, which is really a call to action to researchers, um, just trying to get people to recognise the lack of research in this area um, and motivate them to get going and produce some more. In terms of education, what are the facts? What's the data relating to, to these issues? What, what, is it that's, what are the issues that are, are very much there at the moment for us? So one thing that definitely did trigger this conversation um, that Aretha and I had a few months ago now um, is that I noticed uh, from the government work census, it identified that particularly in senior leadership, if you break that down by gender, if you break it down by race, the numbers of black and Asian women who are making it through the ranks in senior leadership are minimal. Specifically in headship, we only have about 1% of head teachers who are from a black, Asian, ethnic minority background. Now, the issue with some of this is that BAME as an acronym encompasses quite a number of um, races and, and, and cultures and backgrounds. So to pin it down to being 1% is clearly not representative of the society that we live in. Furthermore, if you're looking at senior leaders who are assistant heads and deputy heads, only 0.1% of them are from a black African background, Chinese and mixed background. So even within that 0.1%, black African specifically makes a minor uh, part of that. And so those disparities, particularly in the leadership um, roles are again, what prompted us to consider creating this, this organization. And, and I know, I know for both of you, or certainly you, Landy, I know I've, I've heard you speak about it. One of your first roles within a school, you, you, you had someone to look up to. You had, uh, I don't know if it was a, a female black senior leader within your school. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. When I was in secondary school, my head teacher, um, when I was a teenager, not so long ago, um, was <laughs> uh, a black woman. Um, and yeah, I mean, the impact that that had on me, having that role model who was very visible, very active, and also very successful in her role that she was awarded an OBE for her impact in education, it meant the world. It meant that I could dream and achieve and, and feel that I could be like her. If you don't see uh, what you'd like to be, you're not going to be able to achieve it in the end. Um, we, we both say that you can't be what you can't see and how important representation is. So, yeah, definitely. That, that it, uh, it highlights the need for this conversation. It highlights the need for the, the actions that need to take place. Aretha, did you have anyone similar in your career or, or was it very much self-led by you? Um, I didn't have anyone similar in my career. I just had role models in my family that were incredibly strong black women. And my family's full of black women and very few males. So we kind of ruled the roost <laughs> in that regard. And just watching them move through the education system and take the most difficult pathway into their respective careers. So they go into social work, they've been into teaching and, and all sorts. But they've just, it's taken them so long to get to the managerial levels. And, and watching their determination 
that was what did it for me. And, you know, I come back to something that my aunt said to me when I was about eight years old. She just said, you know, just make sure whatever job you get, be a manager because you can't take orders from anybody. And that <laughs> stuck with me because that is just literally the aspirational lid to just lifting that glass ceiling saying, well, actually, you know, I'm not going to be stuck taking any direction. I'm going to start leading. Um, and to have that instilled in me and to see that within my role models from my family, that's what drove me. So, uh, Aretha, do you think without those role models within your family environment, do you think you'd have had those role models from your school life, from, you know, what society had given you in your both schooling when you were younger and then your chosen career? No, no, I, I no. <laughs> I wouldn't go into details, but no, definitely not. Um, I, I definitely haven't taken a straight route into teaching. Um, I think you re referenced my, the Bendy Pipes uh, conversation <laughs> I had at the Chartered College. And, <laughs> and that was very much about taking different routes into education. You know, you don't necessarily have to do the straight school, college or school sixth form into university and then back into the classroom as a teacher. Um, a lot of people, especially BAME women, don't do that route. Um, but that brings a lot of other skills and a lot of other depth that they can bring to that career in the classroom or in that career in leadership and education. And I think it's recognising those roots um, might be slightly different for the people that perhaps you mentor or perhaps you work with and then using those roots to, the, to their advantage by drawing out the skills that can be transferred over into education. Is that, I guess one of the issues that's coming into my head, one of the many issues, but one of the ones based on this conversation is, is if someone who has the potential to go and be a brilliant teacher, a brilliant senior leader, a brilliant head teacher, who's from a black or minority ethnic background, if they haven't seen that role model, how big an issue that must be? I mean, I, you know, I'm a, a white male with an education and I had nothing but role models, uh, whether it was white females or white males at throughout my entire schooling and then through university too. So for me, it was very easy to picture myself in those roles, in those positions. I was able to aspire to that because it was what I'd seen all the way through growing up. It's very difficult for me to imagine growing up in a world where I don't have that person to look up to, where I don't have that person to aspire to be. How difficult and how much of a challenge is that for being women specifically trying to, you know, make a career within education? I think a nice analogy that I've been mulling over um, this week while at school is I'm currently working with two students at, at my school who are applying to Oxbridge. Um, and when you get, you have, any teacher knows if a child wants to venture into applying to Oxbridge, you have to encourage them and build their confidence up and then start talking about the interview and then you have to build them up again for that. But imagine being a black child who is going into that, that situation, knowing full well that when you walk into that room, more often than not, you are the only black child in that room. And for some of them, particularly those coming from London, that is a very unnerving experience. How does that link to what you just asked? Well, imagine you're a, a black woman, an Asian woman, and you are considering going into leadership, but you look above you and not a single person looks like you. It's that same feeling. It's that lack of confidence. It's that who do I turn to? Who do I see looks like me who could tell me that this is okay and almost um, give me that, that self-efficacy to, to push forward and uh, try and attempt to apply for these sorts of roles. I think one of the, one of the interesting things, just trying to think of looking at this through the, the lens of a mentor or, or someone who's involved in supporting um, colleagues within school, uh, we have lots of mentors who will be listening to the podcast. Um, if 
if you're if you're not from a BAME background, but you're a mentor who's supporting uh, a black or Asian woman who's who's within education, what can that mentor do to be, as you spoke about at the at the very start, to be an ally? What can they do to support their mentee? How can they be part of the solution? I think it's about you know developing the values and visions of themselves as a mentor in the first and foremost. You know, inclusion doesn't just mean tick box tokenism. It actually means doing things, taking it through to action and then evaluating and reviewing it and then moving it forward later on. So if, without that starting point and without that commitment to inclusion, then we're kind of stuck um, and that needs to change. And I think that's where a lot of people do fall down. Um, once you are committed to inclusion, though, there's loads of stuff that you can do. And it is really about creating a space, I think, um, as Yolandi said, you know, if you look above you and there's no one there, what do you do? And you can't always have those conversations with confidence with uh, people in your environment or your education setting. And I think it's about creating a space that is welcoming and tolerant and enables discussions to take place because we don't do, you can't do a one size fits all thing for, for every single blame, blame women in education. It needs to be tailored to their needs and it needs to be tailored to their, their view of what education looks like and their aspirations and so I always say if you're mentoring someone at the early stages of their career talk about their goal yes talk about classroom practice yes talk about you know behavior management when they've had a really rubbish day and the year eights are kicking off but also talk about where they want to be what is their long-term vision get them to start looking further than the next day or the next observation get them to start plotting their career forward um, and that's that's the key bit because that's again lifting that aspiration that's lifting the glass ceiling and saying you know what you can do it I can give you the confidence to it I can show you the routes because one of the things is sometimes we just don't know the route that we ought to be taking um when for me when I was mentored um and championed by you know people in my schools they were always white men and you can't get further from my demographic than a white male so their pathway was not my pathway. Their pathway, the barriers they faced were not going to be my barriers. They gave me really inspirational journeys, but they couldn't give me that discrete pathway. And I think it's a combination of both. It's inspiring, providing the confidence, lifting that lid, but also trying to find out ways that you can meet the needs of their bespoke pathways. What else might you need to do? And it might take some innovative practice. It might mean looking at the, out the box. It might be speaking to colleagues, but once you do that, you then get a more holistic um, wraparound service. One of the one of the uh, you posted recently on your Twitter feed um, a quote from Brené Brown, and we were speaking before the podcast about how inspirational some of her research is. And um, the the quote was: "Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weaknesses." And mm. um, it, it rung true with me because some of the conversations around these issues are uncomfortable. Uh, certainly for me to have purely because I, I'm I'm probably not as informed in these areas as I would want to be I wasn't aware or as aware of these issues as I would want to be and in order to inform yourself in order to learn and in order to become more knowledgeable myself I need to have uncomfortable conversations and I think Aretha you were just talking then about having space and an environment in which you're comfortable to talk about those things and I think that's really important for anyone who wants to be an ally or anyone who wants to support uh, this movement is that some of those uncomfortable conversations are the conversations that we need to start having. 
most definitely and I think particularly like honing in on that word I mean firstly I should probably say how much I do love Brene Brown I think she's incredible <laughs> but I highly recommend you listen to listen to what she has to say read what she's written incredible but honing in on that word vulnerability when you're going into that mentor meeting my um, biggest inspiration when I talk about an ally one thing she always said to me was that the membrane between, uh, the emotional membrane between personal and professional in education is wafer thin. So as a mentor, if you're going into that meeting and you're not feeling vulnerable about the conversations that you know you have to have with this person because you're trying to really open up their doors and allow them to feel, particularly these Black and Asian women, you're trying to allow them to know that it's okay for them to aspire and that they should aspire, you have to, and you will, I tell you now, you're going to feel uncomfortable because it's a conversation that perhaps has never been one that's been at the forefront of your mind to have. And much like Aretha has spoken about already about that confidence gap that uh, Black and Asian women come to the table with, if we're not talking about how to build that confidence up, what are their barriers? Hear from them how they're feeling about even considering that idea. Look at their body language when they're talking about it. Having that space where you can feel vulnerable, it's where you'll hear the truth, it's where courage can be built, and where movement and positive change can come from. So I highly encourage these sort of vulnerable, um, open conversations to, to occur in those mental um, relationships and meetings. We, and I think that, you know, away from our, you know, slightly narrow conversation today in, in view of mindful equity and everything, drawing that out to what Thames is about more generally, being a mentor, mm -hmm. that idea of, of vulnerability between you and your mentee is you know transformational potentially yeah. because like you say if you if you can't show vulnerability then it's very difficult for the person opposite you to be able to openly reflect upon their own performance or whatever it is that you're you're mentoring for you've got to lead that conversation in the right way 100 percent. from the perspective of you guys and, and mindful equity and 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 what you're building what's your vision what's your goal what's what's the blue sky thinking you know what do you think is reasonable for you to aim to achieve in the next few years with what you're building gosh that's a big question i don't think we've thought that far ahead <laughs> <laughs> sorry Reed. you're four months in I and don't... i'm already throwing these sorts of things at you I... so uh, yeah go on sorry no 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 I just, just, even if it's you know something that in your head you think do you know what that's probably completely unachievable in the time space that we've got what what, what is it you would love to see what what real impact would you love to have in the next few years yeah the, for us the end goal is really to change the way that leadership looks around the tables um, we have lots of people who may be in middle leadership who are struggling to break through into senior leadership we have people in senior leadership who may be stuck at assistant principal role and can't move into headship and it's really just to change the the landscape and the way that leadership looks when you're sat around those leadership tables making those decisions because until that happens we don't have an equitable um, educational system because no, no not all voices are being heard and therefore mm. not all voices are directing the policies not all voices are directing the processes not all policies not all voices are directing policies at government level either so mm. it, it really is about changing the dynamic and changing the way that people enter leadership and changing the mindset of people that are already there 
so that they start thinking about actually how can we become involved and change the dynamic and that is a, a really probably a bit of a wishy-washy answer but but that is long-term vision because that's when I feel like you know we, we've done it we, we've we've done what we've set out to do and it is about encouraging black and Asian women to be part of that journey and end up being at that table making the decisions um, supporting others to think differently um, yeah that, that's you you summed it up beautifully it wasn't wishy-washy at all and i think no. it, it ends it ends with that um that policy change because if it comes from both ends we're working very much um as aretha describes at the grassroots right the action where the careers are starting where they're where they're building and growing and, and people are curating and thinking and synthesizing of what education could look like in a few years time however if at the top the, the leaders, those who are making the policies and directing uh, or creating, if you will, the, the MPQs, for example, we're not going to see the change. We'll just keep hitting concrete wall after concrete wall. So really, in the end, there has to be policy change within the field of education. And as Aretha said, around who is appointed into leadership, how those appointments are made, because that recruitment process, again, is another um, aspect of what I'm talking about coming from, from the top as well as it coming from the bottom as well. I guess to get to that point, it's it's hundreds, potentially thousands of little steps with lots of people being involved across a wide range of different environments and schools and whatever else. Well, Nasbit obviously is very involved within ITT um, and it strikes me that there's a, a real opportunity and I know you guys work very closely with early career teachers and, and trainees. It strikes me that there's a huge opportunity for ITT providers to be part of the solution to this, to, to be aware of what they can do to be an ally um, and to support the journey. So for, for people who are involved in ITT, who are listening to this, what can they do? How can they be involved um, in, in you know, empowering black and Asian women to, to believe that they're capable and that there is a path and a route for them to make it to leadership if that's what they want? Absolutely. Um, it boils down to uh, diversity and inclusion not being a bolt-on. It boils down to uh, providers, IT, um, ITT providers, thinking about how it can be constantly drip-fed because it may be that in their institution currently, they don't have a black, Asian woman or man for that matter, for whatever the reasons may be. It might be context, you might be uh, in the toppest parts of Scotland for all we know, there just might not be that diversity there. However, the conversation is still valid, it is still needed, because if it is something that is brought up and thought about through every action that you do, if you're talking about behaviour, is it thought about? When you're talking about um, teaching and learning, is it thought about? If it's a constant thread that runs through the core of what makes your school, your institution, your training provision, what it is, it will create that space, that comfort, that sense of confidence to build and grow in those educators, but also the teachers who are allies, who are being trained to be those allies of the future. It will be something that they're already cognizant of, that they are aware of, and also that they feel more comfortable to talk about it, challenge it, and offer that support when the time arises for them. Uh, Aretha, anything that, that springs to mind? Thank you, Yolanda. Anything that springs to mind, Aretha, for, for ITT providers and, and people that are involved in either setting up, delivering on those programmes, anything beyond what Yolanda spoke about? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, Yolanda sums it up really well. And I think it is about creating the next generation and making sure that we move on from here. 
I mean, we're, to be honest, we're having this conversation um, on the way, in the wake of the death in America and some protests around the world. And I think we have to take this moment to reflect on what's, what's come before us, you know, what's happened prior to this, and really think about sustainable actions that have a long lasting impact because it had, like Yolandi said, drip feeding, that constant dialogue, creating that space and having actions that are realistic. And you mentioned small steps, so small steps and sustainable. That's the only way that I think we'll be able to make a change. And I think ICT providers and the people that are subscribed to these programs are, are integral to that because, you know, I might retire in about 20 years. Um, <laughs> I know what my leg I want my legacy to be, but actually, I need someone to carry that through after I've, I've, you know, gone and stunned myself in the Bahamas or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, it is about creating that sustainable. And what, you know, what I'm really conscious of is that emotive conversation and the fear factor behind it. And that's part of what Yolandi and I try to do. We, we try to engage people in a really positive, collaborative approach so that everything's solution focused because it is a difficult conversation and it is a challenging thing to do. And there might be blockers that you have to tackle, um, but it is about making sure that we take that fear away. We look at realistic, sustainable solutions um, and then we embed them. And then you know what, if it doesn't work, that's where evaluation and review comes in. We're, we're, we're tight on time. So I, I'm gonna, we normally do our top five and we spoke briefly about this at the start. I'm gonna take away any fear factor for having to decide who your <laughs> one person at a dinner table would be just because I'm enjoying the conversation too Oh, much that's to, the only answer I had. <laughs> I have <laughs> that now. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll let you both, uh, we can end the podcast with you telling me who the one person you'd have at your dinner party would be. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, Barack okay. Obama. Okay. Renee we'll... Brown at the minute. <laughs> Well, that wasn't at the end, guys, but all right, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll take both answers. That's fine. Um, <laughs> what I did want to talk about before we go, and again, I, you know, this is for the Thames, and we'll have a lot of mentors and, and ITT providers tuning in, but I also want to talk about what the impact of all these positive little steps can have on the children that we teach, because ultimately the only reason any of us are here is, is because we want to impact positively on the children within our schools. That's what motivates anyone to be in education pretty much. Um, if you're in it for the money, then that was a terrible choice of career. But um, <laughs> what what sort of impact and, and, you know, not just, we've touched on it a little bit. And I think it's really important to highlight that, that by being inclusive, by being aware of these things, by having the difficult conversations, what sort of impact does that have on every child, not just black children, Chinese children, whoever it is, what impact does that have on every single child within a school context? Oh, I love that question. There is a study that was conducted by McKinsey and what they found is that organisations that have diverse leadership teams, um, they earned 3%, sorry, three times more financial yield than organisations that didn't have diverse boards. Because by having more diverse teams in the first instance, you're, you're also going to bring in diverse thoughts, um, other ideas of... Um, essentially how the organization can be moved forward from perspectives you perhaps may not have thought of what impact that directly has on the students is that they begin to see what society could and does look like because 
I always say that schools are the microcosms of societies that are, are about to, to become because the children we're, we're breeding, we're not breeding, we are uh, rearing <laughs> and, um, take, and growing and nurturing the, the society um, of the future. And if our young people are not exposed to the society that we'd like them to, to, to have, in the future, then our school environment isn't fit for purpose. Um, it allows students to, to aspire and it grows confidence. If they can see someone, whether they be a white child or a black child, a Chinese child, any race, if they can see diverse people in power, people making those decisions about behavior, making those decisions about curriculum, what they study, it really encourages them to believe that actually there's anything that they could do. So to kind of wrap things up, it would be really nice to hopefully end on a positive note. Um, because I think despite the fact that these are difficult conversations and it's a shame that, you know, education or society maybe more generally is in this position, it would be really nice. And I think it's a positive thing that we are now having these conversations and it is at the forefront of people's minds. What can people do, mentors, trainees, uh, members of training providers, when they walk through the door tomorrow morning, if they're listening to this and they're feeling empowered and they, and they want to make a difference, what can those people do on the ground tomorrow morning as a starting point? Uh, and then equally, how can they find you guys, Mindful Equity, how can they go and find you guys to, to engage in more longer term? Yes, I think the quick wins, the quick takeaways would be literally to create that space. So first of all, you need to kind of have a conversation with yourself and reflect on those barriers that might be in in the way. But the quickest thing to do is scheduling a time to reflect, scheduling a time to have the conversation with your mentee. So you're creating that space and actually that dialogue. Think about how you're going to phrase that particular dialogue in a way that doesn't make you feel too uncomfortable that stops the conversation but sets the right tone and before you do that it might be just a really informal conversation with your mentee say you know what are you aiming for what do you think are your barriers have a think and come back to me because that's going to be our conversation and that creates a dialogue where people are kind of thinking okay how am I going to get to the pathway and they're going to bring a lot of information to you which you can then use to support them and tailor their their package of support great and in in terms of the wider picture thinking what sort of stuff do mindful equity do to support uh, allies or or, or being women who, who who want to reach out so in the first instance um we created part of our third strand is that peer network that we create uh we namely hashtag in ed together um each academic year we we plan to run bi-termly events we launched in August and we were going to have an event in October but I'm sure all educators and mentors can appreciate we're trying to get back to the new normal and settling in time is important and actually some placements have been delayed etc so our next event is happening on Saturday the 12th of December uh, and tickets are available via Eventbrite. Um, What happens in those events is we have a a range of speakers, all educators within the profession, sharing their journeys, sharing their experiences. There are so many lessons to be learned from those and so many powerful takeaways, not only for black and Asian women, but also for those allies working alongside uh, those women to support them in their career journey. Furthermore, if you visit our website, which is 
www.mindfulequityuk.co.uk. Um, it summarises our journey. It tells you a little bit about us and the things we've been up to uh, all from the beginning of uh, a tweet I posted many months ago to uh, the BBC um, news broadcast that myself and Aretha did uh, a few months ago too. But another useful tool on there would be blogs. And we have quite a number of guest blogs on there um, from people such as Dame, uh, Dame Alison Peacock um, and some other educators who have reflected on their journeys, but also their journeys as becoming allies, what work they've been doing, tips and tricks that they've offered. There's also a very powerful blog by um, a black woman who is, uh, has gone through a challenging journey. But why, uh, why they're there is, again, to bring those examples to the fore, to allow people to, to reflect on those, and also steal some tips uh, from these colleagues who have shared their stories in such a, a powerful way. Brilliant. Thank you, guys. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant to have the opportunity to sit and chat with you guys. Um, everything you're doing with Mindful Equity is, is brilliant. And the fact that you're doing it alongside full-time senior leadership roles is, I, I tip my hat to you. It's very impressive. I don't think I'd have the energy to even think about it, let alone go ahead and do it. So um, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to, uh, to chat to us. Thank, well, thank you, you so much, James, for having us. It's been a real pleasure. No problem. Um, best of luck with everything in the future. I look forward to seeing you guys in December. I'll definitely be along at the event. Um, and yes, hopefully we'll get a chance to, uh, to cross paths again. Uh, hopefully. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. Wonderful to have the opportunity to chat with Aretha and Yolande on this week's podcast. A huge thank you to them both for giving up their time. Remember, there's plenty more for teacher educators and mentors to engage with on the Thames pages. Just visit www.nasbit.org.uk forward slash T-E-M-Z. We'll be back in a few weeks time with our next episode of the Thames podcast. In the meantime, thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.